Howdy, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. And joining me on today's show is John Harney. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. So we're happy to be joining you from coronavirus isolation. And I'm sure, dear listener, that you are getting plenty of coronavirus news elsewhere. Um, I know, for instance, that all of my regular podcast feeds have essentially turned over into coronavirus shows, uh, especially in the last week or so. Um, so with that said, I wanted to let you know up front that we're going to be keeping the discussion on history and games, and we're going to try our best to keep our minds off of the current situation we find ourselves in. Uh, we do, however, wish you the very best and hope that you enjoy a healthy stay in isolation wherever you might be. And if you do need any medical advice regarding Corona, please go elsewhere because we are not those kind of doctors. <laughs> John, you got anything you want to add? Um, no, that's it. Stay healthy, stay at home. Um, this is an amazing, we're not going to have it too long. This is an amazing historical moment to live through. And my, my mind is spinning a little bit. My head is spinning a bit at knowing that we'll be talking about this pretty soon, the way we talk about Spanish flu and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fukuyama was wrong. There's a a medium level cut for the history nerds listening. <laughs> oh, that is, yeah, I'd say medium level. That's that's probably that's probably yeah. accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was I was reminded this past week of uh, I think it's the Chinese phrase "May you live in interesting times." Yes. And yes. It, it's a too. very very popular phrase with British academics. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking of, in particular of the uh, famous Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm and Hobsbawm's um, uh, autobiography uh, is entitled Interesting Times. And it's a play on that phrase. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, I would like to have my uninteresting times. Thank you very much. I, I was thinking the same thing. And also for those listening at home, for the love of God, do not take that as a recommendation by Bob to read Hobsbawm's autobiography because <laughs> it's the worst thing that man ever wrote. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, goodness. And I like Eric Hobsbawm, but uh, I, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> okay, well, with that said, let's, uh, let's turn to some of the history games uh, that we've been playing. And... John, I've I've had quite a bit of time in the last couple of months to play games, uh, primarily because I had the vanilla flu all throughout February. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time at the house, uh, basically isolating myself before it was fashionable. And <laughs> I played through a set of games that all revolve around resistance to Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Uh, and it started out with uh, playing the most recent game through the darkest of times, uh, which is developed by paint bucket games. And then I followed that up by playing, uh, Warsaw, uh, which was developed by pixelated milk. And that came out, uh, I think in September of last year. And uh, then the last one I played, uh, was an indie game by Charles games, uh, a, a Czech development group. Uh, and this game is called Intentat 1942. Uh, and so all of these games in various ways revolve around resistance to Nazi Germany in the Second World War. Darkest of Times is basically a White Rose Society simulator. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, German resistance to uh, Hitler and the Nazi regime. Warsaw is set during the 
uh, Warsaw Uprising in the fall of 1944. Uh, and then Attentat 1942 is set in uh, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, uh, after the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich uh, by Czech uh, partisans uh, in 1942. Um, and so... I wanted to talk about these games because they were what I've been playing, but also because I think they are all interesting in the way that they make resistance or the idea of resistance a bit more complicated than what has been typically seen by resistance or the idea of resistance in previous World War II video games. Um, you know, I feel like when you play a World War II video game, typically what you get is, you know, Saving Private Ryan knockoffs or sometimes you get uh, grand strategy games, or you might get something like uh, the Commando series uh, that IDOS developed in the late 90s, early 2000s, where it's kind of tactical stealth and whatnot. But you don't often mm -hmm. get examples of ordinary people in the ways that they resisted and fought in the Second World War. So all of these indie games do that, and they all do it... Um, sometimes in similar ways, but also in different ways, and it's different ways based on the type of games that they are. So just briefly, Attentat is basically an oral history simulator where you are playing a, um, a modern-day Czech citizen in 2001 uh, who's going around interviewing his older relatives and friends about uh, the assassination of Heydrich in 1942, uh, Warsaw is a tactical roguelike in the mold of Darkest Dungeon. Um, and hmm. it's kind of, you know, got a high difficulty level. Um, and then Darkest of Times is kind of a mixture of a strategy game and a visual novel. Um, but in each of these games, they do a really good job of pointing out some of the uh, problems with resistance during the Second World War. Uh, in particular, the ways in which uh, ordinary people resisting could often lead to unintended consequences. So, for instance, in Attentat, after the assassination of uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, you have the Nazis going around and uh, rounding up dissidents, um, you know, having mass executions, sending people off to concentration camps, and then destroying whole towns uh, in Czech Republic, modern-day Czech Republic. Um, and then in Warsaw, you have instances where certain groups of citizens won't help your resistance group, won't help the uprising, because they're worried about reprisals. Um, and then finally, in Darkest of Times, you've got examples of not just resistance to people resisting the Nazis, but then also examples of divisions within the resistance group. Uh, so for instance, in the strategy game, you lead a collective of uh, resistors in Darkest of Times, uh, but they can be made up of uh, many different types of people with different political ideologies. So you can have communists trying to work with monarchists, um, you know, people, uh, social democrats, uh, working uh, with people who are kind of authoritarians. They just don't like the Nazis. And so there's <laughs> definite moments where there's tension between those political groups. And so I just feel like these games are really remarkable, I think, in the way in which they have kind of collectively changed the narrative uh, with World War II games. I feel like 
you can't go by now and simply uh, criticize World War II games in the same way after these games have been published because they really, I think, collectively changed the way that I've viewed World War II games. Um, and I think it's really exciting. So I wanted to talk about them. Yeah, you know, so Bob, I have a couple of questions about them. So I'm familiar with all three, but I haven't played any of the three. Um, the way you're talking about them is quite interesting. So, of course, as you know, a long-standing argument in favor of games and history studies is this idea of player agency and player credit narratives and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way you were just talking about these games and bring a complexity to resistance. I mean, are these games to varying degrees vindication of that kind of of that classic argument? I mean, do you think these games are doing things? So for example, in, in class last semester, I had a student, you know, she was troubled by the Hong Kong protests and she was like, what do they want to, what do they want? And I was like, well, that the problem with that is the very natural tendency to try and identify what the Hong Kong protest movement is and what it's trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And beyond some kind of resistance, the actual act of resistance itself, it's challenging, challenging to identify that um so being anti-nazi does not automatically make you a coherent solidified movement so it seems to me the way you're talking about the games that the games are taking advantage of gameplay i mean are are they doing something that movies and and novels haven't been able to do or without necessarily having to go that strong like i said is this kind of vindication of that classic argument that games allow players to to narrativize the experience i mean i think in the way that you've set up that question. I think that these games are doing something different from motion pictures or from Mm -hmm. um, another media source. I think that um, I'll just take each game individually. Darkest of Times uh, is a game in which you uh, are playing a strategy of attempting to resist the Nazi regime in Germany. And you're doing so in a manner very similar to the, um, the White Rose Society. Uh, which is a famous uh, resistance group in Germany during the Second World War, which uh, published leaflets, um, wrote um, uh, uh, diatribes against the Hitler and the state. Uh, they also uh, painted graffiti uh, in public areas, trying to get attention uh, with regards to Nazi atrocities. And in all of that work, uh, you have moments where you know things can go against you, things can go for you, but uh, along the way, you quickly realize that no matter how much work you're doing, uh, no matter how much success you have on a tactical level, uh, you're going to lose the larger war. You're never going to be able to stop the war. And it makes, I think, the powerful point through gameplay that survival is success, right? Survival Mm -hmm. is victory. Um, And I think Warsaw also makes the same point um in the midst of that uh game you are playing through uh, the warsaw uprising in 1944 which lasted about a month and a half uh before it was finally put down uh in early october 1944 and in that game you can have major tactical success you can have success in your missions throughout the city whether it's you know taking out nazi soldiers whether it's supplying civilians who are going through uh, the uprising, trying to survive. Um, and But in all of those tactical moments, whether or not you're successful or not, uh, it doesn't change the end point. Uh, you are always 
going to have the uprising put down. Um, but it still gives you that feeling as though, you know, this is still worthwhile. This is still worth doing, even though the Mm -hmm. ending is already a foregone conclusion. Um, and then with the last one, uh, Tenta 1942, I think that this is probably the best game of the bunch. It's the one that Mm -hmm. I would really look forward to using in my, um, Nazi Germany class uh, at Louisiana Mm -hmm. tech because it is bringing in so many accurate historical details and it is having you act as a oral historian. So you are responsible for the historical information that you're able to gather, right? So Hmm. it's not just giving it to you. You have to uh, come up with your own narrative for what happened to your relatives what happened to their friends during the war and you mm-hmm. can fail, right? You can not get the <laughs> whole picture uh, and end up thinking like, Oh, this guy was a collaborator. Uh, you could think that, you know, your older family member uh, may have uh, participated in uh, the assassination attempt on Heydrich when he didn't uh, all of these things. And it kind of goes to show that, you know, history is, uh, based primarily on what sources you have access to. And I think that that kind of narrative, it would be very difficult to portray effectively in a motion picture, uh, for instance. Mm-hmm. So to stick with the Tentat then, because it really sounds fascinating to me. Um, so you say like almost like an oral history constructing game or, mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, so I, I'm immediately thinking of, um, um, of course, I can't remember now that the classic uh, British documentary c- series on World War II narrated by Laurence Olivier, World at War. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about World at War is that it's being made back in the 60s and early 70s. So it's talking to all these people who are discussing the Blitz like 20 years earlier, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I, I don't mean to keep kind of doing the classic video games versus movies thing, but, like, how is a tent at 1942? It sounds like I'm thinking of a documentary the way you describe it, but you've already convinced me it's doing stuff the documentary couldn't do. Like, could you talk about that a bit more? Sure. I mean, just, just, you know, cause, and you... my, again, knowing the images, because at a tent at it actually has, like, well, the, the concept is talking to survivors, right? So there's actually kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I haven't played the game. I just know from the from the screenshots they have, there's actual peep, there's actual actors here. Yes. Yeah. Right. In it's, addition to the art style. Yeah. So the, the fictional construction of the game is that you are, um, in 2001 and you're interviewing people, uh, who lived through, um, the assassination of Heydrich in what mm-hmm. is now the Czech Republic. And in comparison to a documentary film, it is as though you are the director of your own documentary. If that makes sense. So you are determining what questions you want to ask. You are determining where your investigation goes. You are determining which documents you look at, which oral histories, and there's actual oral history recordings in the game, which one of those you listen to. And then that Hmm. determines what kind of final answer you get from the game. Um, and there's plenty of opportunities to go back and replay things and get different answers, look for different responses. But I just went straight through it and it took me about an hour and 45 minutes to get through the game. Um, hmm. But it was a much more intense uh, experience, I think, than just kind of 
languishing <laughs> as you would <laughs> watching a um, you know World at War documentary at ten thirty at night on Netflix. Right. Um, right. It's much more intensive. It's much more interactive, and I felt from the perspective of an instructor, it's something I would much rather my students interact with than simply sitting there and watching a documentary, even though documentary, I'm not trying to say doesn't right. have no, value, no, no, no. but yeah. I just think that if you were to discuss the ideas of, uh, resistance, if you were to discuss, if you were to do anything on Czech history during the second world war or during, uh, you know, modern history, uh, it's mm -hmm. really, really something I highly, highly recommend really an amazing experience. It sounds fantastic. I, I have another question kind of aimed at all three. There's a little bit of a, a turn now, but um, my familiarity with them has is really on the visuals of the games from just kind of paying attention to the marketing and everything else and kind of having them on my, on my wish list and everything else. How do you feel the visual style of the games plays into the theme or doesn't? They're all indie game. I think all three are indie games, yes, right? Yes, Um, But they're all quite, I feel they're all quite striking in what they're doing. I mean, for example... Um, through the darkest of times has this kind of interesting, almost like paper style. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I'm not doing a good job. You might do it better than I do, but it has a very distinctive visual style. It, it looks mean, a again, little bit like know. a graphic novel. Um, yeah. You know, like a, um, Oh, uh, what's the famous one regarding the Holocaust mouse. Um, yeah. Yeah. That uh, really famous graphic novel. I'm totally forgetting the author's name now, but, I just have that kind of uh, novelized, graphic novelized look to it. I think it's really arresting. Right. Right. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of what, I mean, again, when I think of indie games, I think of budgets and everything else, but you kind of have these very, ah, how do I explain it? Um, it seems to have worked to the advantage of all three games, I yes. guess is what I'm saying. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, so like even in a tent at 1942, you have the actors, you have the intercutting with this art style. It seems to be, these games feel authentic. Yes. <laughs> in, in, in a, in a, in a, I they was feel, they official feel way, but bespoke. Uh, if yeah, you know. yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, and that's and right. I think, I think it fits, you know, that style, it really fits the themes of the game. You know, they're all about resistance to authoritarianism. And I think that that setup really fits with uh, an indie studio uh, in mm -hmm. their sensibilities and their perspective. And, you know, I think, uh, they all are visually very, very Im impressive. Um, I think through the darkest times, like you said, uh, it does a really, really good job of the with the visual novel sections. So you'll have sections of the uh, game in which you're playing the strategy game side, uh, and then once you've gone through a certain time period, uh, you go through a visual novel section that kind of jumps you forward in time. So like the first part of the game is, uh, from the ascension of Hitler through to the Olympics. And then the second section is like through the Olympics to the beginning of the war. And then the last section is the first part of the war. And then, uh, and then the very final section is the very end of the war. If you make it that far, um, and during these visual novel sections, in between those strategy sections, uh, you get really impressive, uh, detailed artwork uh, that goes along with the kind of uh, graphic novel appearance of the characters uh, that you've already discussed. And I think it's really well done. Um, and I think might be the strongest part of the game. Um, hmm. I'd have to think about that a bit more. But the visuals are definitely really impressive. Uh, and then with Warsaw, you've got kind of this... Um, kind of grungy 
comic mm-hmm. book look to it. But the artwork, especially the character artwork, is really impressive. And I think it really fits the tone of that game really well. Um, and I think, obviously, it owes a lot to Darkest Dungeon, which is a game that I've never played. But uh, mm-hmm. after playing Warsaw and loving it, um, I can't wait to get my hands on that. And then just real quickly, Attentat is the one that has the most varied visual style because it has the oral history sections, which are uh, FMV sequences. Um, and, but then they also have these interludes uh, going back to flashbacks that are all done in comics. And it mm. has the same kind of uh, comic book look uh, and movement of something like... Um, Oh, what's the what's the movie um, like Sin City? Um, mm-hmm. You know where it has yeah. the sections yeah. where yeah, there's comic yeah. So it it does that, uh, and those are really well done as well. Um, so I think you're right to point out the you know, kind of visual aspects of these games because it really does help them land a lot of the thematic work that they're trying to do with regards to resistance. Cool. So it really sounds like you'd pretty heartily recommend all three then. I do. I would say I would say that Darkest of Times is a game that works really well as a visual novel, but in all in all frankness and all seriousness, I think the strategy game part of it is a bit lacking. And I think it's mm-hmm. lacking primarily because it's trying to make the point that a lot of this work was never going to overthrow the regime and that survival was the mm-hmm. objective, but at the same time, uh, the strategy game elements just feel a little bit, I don't know what the right word is, um, kind of spongy. Um, mm-hmm. Some some elements seem to matter, but others don't, and it's hard to determine uh, right. what, you know, what the balance is. Warsaw is uh, a really satisfying tactical roguelike that I really enjoyed, and... Um, I blazed through it in a night. I think it's like a five-hour <laughs> game, and I played the whole thing in one evening. Um, and then Attendat uh, is, uh, you know, it's about two hours, three hours, uh, if you go back and replay it. But it is a really arresting story. Uh, and maybe that's just the historian in me. You know, it's like, oh, it's mm-hmm. an oral history simulator. <laughs> I love this. Um, but I think it does a really good job of preventing, uh, presenting the story, presenting the elements, and it does it in a really nice, tight window. Um, mm-hmm. And it's definitely something that you could assign to students. It, it was developed by Charles Game, and it's at Charles University in Prague. So I think they had kind of educators in mind right. when they created this. And I think that really shows in the way that's developed and in the time it takes uh, to get through the material. Awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about what else we've been playing, I suppose. You got anything that you've been working through or? Yeah, I'm a terrible. I'm a terrible guest because I haven't been playing any history stuff at all. Um, the closest I have, I guess, is Resident Evil 2, which I haven't played a lot of, the remake. Um, but I might have mentioned the last time I was in the podcast. That's how busy I've been. So um, a bit of Pro Evolution Soccer and um, <laughs> um, the Division 2, actually, the new expansion. <laughs> Just started that. So and then a lot of farming games. That's what I've been it's, doing. It's funny you bring up the Division 2 because... 
I I started it recently mm-hmm. just to try it out. I I got it. It went on for three dollars sale for three dollars yeah, yeah. on PlayStation. Yeah. So I bought that, and I played the first I don't know three hours or so. But mm-hmm. there's a sequence near the beginning where. Uh, you know, the premise of the division is a worldwide flu pandemic takes out a huge know, part of the population. I know, I know. And I was just like, I don't think I'm going to stick around <laughs> for this one. Thanks. The, fir- the first one, the first game is worse. Um, I remember at the time my, my son was very young and um, in, in the opening montage of the, ver- the first division game, um, there's literally a child coughing and struggling to breathe while a parent begs him to stay with him. And I'm like, oh, my, what's going on? And then it was just like an over the shoulder Ubisoft shooter for 20 hours. <laughs> it's like, take it easy, guys. You oh, know? But I could see the division two being um, I, I did all that behind me. I, I'm back in New York now at the expansion. So we did a, a quick thing. And um, no, those are good games. But yeah, that's what I've been doing. Lots of farming games, like I said, for whatever reason, yeah. calming myself, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, and Animal Crossing just came out, which is like personal history for me because I see all these people on Twitter going crazy about Animal Crossing, and I'm like, how many of these people were? I remember, I remember running around in the GameCube version at one in the morning trying to find a ghost. That was <laughs> my. I played a lot of Animal Crossing on the GameCube twenty years ago, yeah. or well, sixteen, seventeen years ago, like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My wife played it quite a bit as well. And I asked her if she was going to get this new one. And she said she wasn't because she wasn't ready for, you know, the real time elements of that game in which you yeah. be certain places and playing the game at certain points. And she just doesn't have that kind of time anymore. So it's, far. It's, it's the perfect yeah. game for somebody in their 20s. It is, although so I will say, because I'm not really playing during the day either, and um, Nook, Nook is available late at night, mm. which has made it actually playable for me. Um, and we'll see. It's the best first impression I've had of an Animal Crossing game since the GameCube one. Wow. That's we'll high see. praise. We'll see. Yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Well, so other... Don't get too excited, listeners. Yeah. The big Animal Crossing <laughs> fan, fandom we have listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the uh, only non-history game that I've been working my way through is XCOM 2, uh, War of the Chosen. And so this is the uh, yes. sequel to XCOM. I think the base game came out in 2017 or something like that. And War so of the you're Chosen. you're a real resistance kick, aren't you? I the am. You know, it's funny because... <laughs> So if you don't know, XCOM is a game and is a tactical, um, I guess you could say tactical roguelike. Yeah, uh, yeah. In which you are playing as uh, an Earth resistance force. Uh, Some might even call it a space force, uh, which is attempting to (laughs) uh, stop uh, an alien uh, takeover of the Earth. And that's the first game. And then in the second game, you learn that... XCOM, the group's name, uh, failed in their task. And now in XCOM 2, it's 20 years later, 20 years after the aliens have taken control of Earth, and you are leading a resistance group uh, to uh, overthrow the alien overlords. And I think this game, uh, you know, and you say I'm on a resistance kick, uh, it's true. I think playing this game after going through Warsaw, Attentat, and through the darkest of times, was a really interesting experience because in War of the Chosen, I'm re- basically you replay through the campaign with added elements, and mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to see the kind of relationship in the game between uh, the human collaborators or former collaborators and the people who kept resisting 
the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for instance, you've got, um, you play this uh, faceless, uh, characterless, uh, voiceless commander, and (laughs) all the other uh, characters in the game talk for you, and they talk way too much, by the way. And but you have your science expert uh, who researches all your technology named Dr. Tygen, and he is a former collaborator. Uh, he used to work with uh, the aliens, uh, used to uh, help them develop their genetic coding technology and genetic therapy technology, and now he's working with XCOM. And you've also got your engineer, uh, Dr. Shin, uh, who is the daughter of a resistance leader, and basically has been fighting the war her entire life and she hates Tygen. She hates the science guy. Uh, she's totally suspicious of him. <laughs> and it, it's a very similar dynamic to what you see in something like uh, Through the Darkest Times where you know commonality in enemy does not necessarily mean commonality in resistance, right? You know, they don't necessarily right. agree on why they're doing what they're doing or how they go about doing it. And it's the same with the added groups for the DLC. So in War of the Trojan, you get uh, introduced to these new resistance groups. Um, I think they're called the Templars, the Skirmishers, and the Reapers, I think. And each of these groups have been resisting the aliens for the past 20 years, but they all hate each other at the same time. (laughs) And so you get a very kind of real sense of what it's like, I think, and in, you know the histories that I've read of trying to build a coalition to resist an authoritarian unified power, and it's really, really, really difficult. Um, I was just going to say it's brutally hard. Yeah, yeah, and it's a very hard game, but uh, I just I find it so compelling, and I, you know, defeating an enemy just in not just in a mission, but just in a turn. You know, it's just such a satisfying feeling that. I feel like I don't get from a lot of other games and but at the same time you really feel the weight of the resistance and you feel the weight uh, from the uh, your soldiers perspective as well Um, in War of the Chosen uh, there's a big emphasis on uh, mental fatigue on physical fatigue on uh, negative traits developed by seeing something really horrifying on the battlefield and so it's Mm -hmm. a game that uh, really puts you through the grinder. And, um, you know, basically what I'm saying is it's good training for the 2020 election. <laughs> what struck me is, um, you know, you've been talking about the social media and I'm like, God, I really enjoyed that game. And I think I played six hours of it and just kind of, I tapped out, you know, um, you know, like Hulk Hogan used to always have that third where his hand would stay in the air, <laughs> but mine didn't do that. Um, and, um, um, but my memory of playing it, and I'd love to go back and play it again, but on the easiest setting was, um, I forget what they were, but like the special boss type people who would just randomly show up and just ruin your mission, yeah. which was something that like the people who played XCOM a lot really liked that because it really, it really shakes things up. And I also play XCOM a lot, but I'm a terrible human being who just enjoys steamrolling through video games. <laughs> so these guys just show up like behind you. And just kill everybody. Yeah. And you're just yeah. like, what the? It's crazy. And and you're just so. And it, they're just such a vivid reminder that you're against this vastly superior force. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Exactly. And I think that you know, I'll I'll admit I do save scum a little bit. I you know I go back and load an <laughs> older save if something's gone terribly wrong. But I try to only do that. <clears throat> 
and I've been successful with this so far. I try to only do that in War of the Chosen when I encounter an ability that I've never seen before. Right. And, and I just feel like I'm willing to put up with base vanilla XCOM and the difficulties that presents. I'm willing to put up with the Chosen and the difficulties those present. But if I encounter some ability that I didn't even know somebody had and it ends up in having my whole squad wiped out, I just, I'm like, no, this is too much. That's, that's, <laughs> it's gone from being unfair to outrageously unfair. So... Um, I, I think those games are kind of half designed for the third playthrough, not even the second playthrough. Yes. Yeah. And those, those days are just behind me now. I just, yeah, I can't, I, I can't commit a hundred hours in advance to a game anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. All right. Well, that's all I got. You got anything else? Um, you know, uh, maybe the next podcast we'll do. I'll have more because I'm getting a bit more gaming in, in the evenings. Once the kids go to bed, I have introduced my son to The Sims 4. Oh, nice. Um, and, and he just, he's into it and he can control the camera. And um, he's just fascinated by these Sim, sim people speaking Simalonian and eating cheeseburgers. Um, his mother's a little concerned that, um, so he created this male character, John. John Luke is the character's name. <laughs> and um, John Luke has a female roommate um, who is frequently flirty. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so his mother is like, what's going on there? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't watched, I haven't played the Sims game in 20 years. Um, I think we're about to find out. So in, interesting updates next time we podcast. <laughs> oh, all these, all these dangers that can come about oh, from being stuck yeah. in the house for days. on end. <laughs> I know. Oh. Who knew? Who knew? He'd have to tell his classmates when he goes back to school. I, yeah. I, I could be that father. It's like, yeah. no. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh geez. Yeah. Oh, that's that would be a difficult thing to live down. I think. Um, well, playing games with kids is so funny because we switched to Sims Four because he he saw me play RimWorld one day, mm-hmm. uh, which is if if you haven't played RimWorld, it's an amazing game. And um, RimWorld also has a kind of a f- abstract sense of humor. So a hair. Um, went insane and was attacking my colonists. And because I was my colonists all, I forget what happened, but basically the hare killed two of the three of them. And I was like, we should we should play The Sims after this. Um, but my son, who's six, uh, comes up to me the next day and goes, you know, sometimes hares go crazy and they just attack you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. This is a, these are the lessons I'm imparting to my eldest child. Do uh, <laughs> video games. Important lesson. Uh, important lesson also from Monty Python as well. So. That's that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, listeners. Well, that does it for today's show. Uh, John, thank you for joining me on this uh, this edition of the History Respawn podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's always fun. Yeah. And so we will try to be back with more episodes. Uh, we are both dealing with the isolation as best we can. We've got kids at home, so it's a little bit difficult to get our normal work done as well as extra work done on History Respawn, but we'll try our best. Uh, and do look forward to some sort of episode uh, regarding one of the three games that I mentioned uh, in this podcast, uh, Through the Darkest of Times, Warsaw, and a Tentat 1942. I've got I've got a guest for a Tentat 1942, uh, but I'm really struggling uh, with the other two. So if you are aware of any historians that have an interest in resistance to Nazi regime during the Second World War, 
please hit us up on social media at History Respawn uh, or at Whitaker Almanac on Twitter. Uh, that would be much appreciated. Uh, and with that, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.